Regular tickets are available from gdtstoo.com and ticketmaster.com. And special tickets, including pre-show dinner, post-show reception, poster, etc., are available by calling 510-845-7382, extension 332. Wavy Cravey's 70th birthday, Saturday, May 20th at the BCT. For more information, visit www.seva.org. And you're listening to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock. Stay tuned for Jennifer Stone, cover to cover. Happy ending, night and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture, drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is Tuesday, May the 2nd, and Friday is Cinco de Mayo, and I want to talk all about May Day, and I want to talk about um, Pete Seeger, the protests. Singer uh, article in the New Yorker. Oh, there's a whole list of stuff. I've really got to stop fragmenting. First off, first off, let me tell those of you who have cable television that if you're Anglophiles like me, you don't want to miss Elizabeth the First. I wasn't sure it would be really, you know, any better than Glenda Jackson's uh, series, but it's entirely different. This one has. Helen Mirren as Elizabeth I, and I know some of you think this is old news, but you know it's the kind of it's the kind of story or play that can always get a new spin. Uh, what this one does is humanize the 16th century, makes it seem so contemporary. <laughs> there's a scene, there's a torture scene that made me think of Abu Ghraib. Never mind, I, I just I, I don't want to say things like that. It's too hideous. Uh, but God knows we haven't made much progress. I used to think that the 16th century was barbaric. Anyway, it's a four-hour biopic, and the British are the best, uh, the best scholars, you know. The costumes are to die for. They, they've really done their historical research properly. Uh, Hollywood just can never quite resist going over the top or doing something weird, you know. Uh, this time, they've got it right. Of course, it is basically a romantic. The two parts focus on the two great loves, um, Robin the Earl of Leicester. We know that one. That's Jeremy Irons. Uh, second half, second two hours is about the Earl of Essex, Leicester's stepson. Uh, it is interesting. Uh, 
the way they tuck everything else in, I, I think that way the story spins out properly. They begin when Elizabeth I is 46 years old. She's already been ruling uh, England. She's been on the throne for 20 years. She came to the throne at the age of 26. Uh, <laughs> have you heard the latest rumor, folks? Uh, there's a play or something about Shakespeare uh, being the illegitimate son of Elizabeth I. Uh, born during those years before she came to the throne. How about that for a uh, wild-eyed spin? I, I myself uh, vote for the Earl of Oxford. I think probably he's got the best claim to be Shakespeare, uh, 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 second, of course, to Shakespeare himself, who might just have written the plays. Uh, last night, I was digging and digging in my files. There are some poems actually written by Elizabeth I, and they're in a collection. Uh, I'll find them. Uh, there's one in particular that is so Shakespearean, and I thought, well, maybe Elizabeth uh, wrote a few passages and slipped them to William Shakespeare, and he tucked them into the plays. Who knows? In this this uh, biopic, Elizabeth I on cable, uh, there are a lot of lines that definitely echo or, you know, their phrases lifted right out of Shakespeare's plays. Now, uh, I don't know whether the playwright thought that um, that made sense. After all, she would have seen the plays and possibly um, she plagiarized a bit, you know, or maybe those phrases were just in use um, around the court. Uh, what I liked about the show is uh, her sense of humor, uh, the... Uh, Let's call it, let's call it the feminist sensibility, the notion that being ruled by a woman is not an altogether dreadful idea. In the second, uh, second part, she has a meeting, I believe this was never historical, but she has a meeting with, uh, uh, Mary of Scotland's son, who is to succeed her. She never says so, but he, of course, came to the throne following the death of Elizabeth, and, uh, uh, she, turns aside and leaves the uh, uh, the room for a moment and uh, James the first to be says to her uh, counselor how how do you like being ruled by a woman and he says he likes it very well and James says that when he is king he will certainly treat women the way dogs treat bitches as is their uh, uh, as as they deserve and so forth it's uh, Fascinating spin. Uh, these days we're all thinking about what it will be like when we have a woman president of the United States, whether that will make a difference, whether uh, it will be uh, any help in this world we're living in. Never mind. Uh, I I had my doubts watching this show about Helen Mirren's use of dark brown contact lenses. She said in an interview that all the pictures of Elizabeth show her with these piercing, dark, marble, dark eyes. And so she decided to use the dark brown contact lenses. Uh, uh, they suddenly give her an electrifying stare. I, I kind of like what she did with her hair better than I've ever seen, <laughs> you know. The wigs and that sort of thing, um, it all seemed fairly realistic. Uh, sometimes she wore wigs and sometimes 
uh, some of her own hair, that sort of thing. Uh, I know that seems trivial, but there are these stories I remember hearing all my life about Mary of Scotland, who was, of course, cousin to Queen Elizabeth, about when she was beheaded, uh, her wig fell off, and this caused uh, some amusement among those who... uh, uh, we're glad to see her die. The uh, scene in which Mary of Scotland is executed, uh, we see that it takes more than one stroke to kill her. Uh, yes, talk about your barbarism. In any case, it's a four-hour biopic. And, uh, yes, Jeremy Irons, I think, is awfully good as Lester. Uh, the death scene is still my favorite. Uh, Elizabeth would have been my age, right, 70 plus, and she stands, uh, stands for 72 hours, they said, uh, didn't eat for the last three weeks. Uh, finally, she does lie down, uh, and simply states something like, I'm minded to die now. Pretty much like the great John Kenneth Galbraith, who has just left us saying, I've had enough now. Uh, Death scenes are just so terrific. I, I hope that um, uh, I can pull it off. The truth is that most of us uh, can look forward to rather sloppy exits from the world. Um, it's just that those of us with a sense of drama keep hoping, you know, that we'll be able to do it with class, with some drama. Uh, never mind what I need to talk about. Next is uh, this glorious rebirth of May Day that we had yesterday. Uh, I can't, I can't tell you how cheerful it was yesterday. I, I kind of felt like the old days, you know. Uh, this migrant labor, mostly Mexican, celebrating their contribution to American success. I mean, that's what May Day was all about once. Uh, I, I guess. Uh, I guess there is such a thing as history repeating itself in a kind of magical way. I thought of Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Nickel and Dime, where she reminds us that in our nation, the true philanthropists, the true um, do-gooders are the low-wage workers, the men and women who make our comfortable way of life possible, you know, this insane standard of living we have uh, If they weren't willing to do the work they do, where would we be? Imagine, just for a minute, imagine what would happen if we had to pay low-wage workers what they're really worth. Remember the arguments back in the 1970s? Remember when feminists set out to measure housework and child care, the actual economic value? In those days, we used to say, listen, hard times is when the only work is women's work. And along with the domestic drudgery, there's stoop labor in the fields. There's thousands of grubby, back-breaking jobs. And most of all, there's construction. Last time I was in Texas, I was absolutely amazed. Uh, Miles and miles of new housing going up, all built by our brothers and sisters from down south. We all know that these jobs require brains as well as brawn, I was uh, upset, uh, insulted by what the BBC newscasters told us. You know, they they love to 
to uh, distinguish the classes in terms of brains and brawn when, of course, as Barbara Ehrenreich tells us, um, these hands-on jobs take uh, plenty of brains. It's difficult. Uh, construction's hard, of course. You know, what those irritating elitists mean when they talk about brains and brawn, what they mean is that in our economy, the high-paying jobs go to the people who can buy degrees, who can afford higher education, those born to some degree of privilege, you know, who can go through the hoops and get that piece of paper. It was ever thus, however, there is hope that this new generation of migrants can emerge victorious. Uh, Raise the wages and things go a little better. Congress seems to be catching up with the people slowly. The old guard always has to be dragged, kicking and screaming into the future. <laughs> the, the prize for the retro behavior goes to these guys, the ones demanding that our national anthems and uh, songs always be sung in English. Yep, English only. If it was good enough for Jesus Christ, right? Anyway, the mass media did try to cover these marches yesterday. I switched all the channels late in the evening uh, and late, late, around midnight, and there was definitely a review of what had gone down. Uh, They did take notice. Some even took time for sound bites from the protesters. C-SPAN, PBS, they tried. The Teamsters Hispanic Caucus looked tough. The senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, was most dignified, most distinguished. I like the women especially. Women stressed the human needs. Um, There were children, children, children everywhere. I remember years ago, Cory Aquino, uh, she became president of the Philippines and in the first flush, the first romance of that revolution, she she said, there are many ways to run a country, but there is only, only one way to treat people. Oh, if only, if only, if only governments and rulers could do that, could run a country the way you run a mom and pop shop, you know, serve the people directly, hands on. But politics is always the art of the possible. The rulers must manipulate the um, powers that be, the money men. They must get permission to do the right thing. (laughs) Although, I'm still remembering LBJ, uh, President Lyndon Johnson, getting on a plane to Louisiana just about an hour after the great 1968 hurricane. Yes, he got down there fast. (laughs) was going around with a flashlight because the electricity was off, saying, Here I am, madam, this is your president, I've come to help, right, LBJ. I remember years and years ago when uh, integration was the issue, we wrote letters to Dwight Eisenhower saying, uh, Dear President Eisenhower, would you please go down south and take a child by the hand and walk into that school? That's what it takes sometimes, the personal touch, of course. It does help if the politicians are conscious enough to know what's right, what's what, to know they're 
arse from their elbow. Some of the dim bulbs in our present administration seem dangerously oblivious. Uh, <laughs> out to lunch, in fact. Uh, their incompetence almost trumps their corruption. The capacity of today's neocons to shoot themselves in the foot is truly remarkable. Uh, this time, the emperor is buck naked. The only question I keep asking, the only question I think is worth asking, is who, just who has the moxie, the wherewithal to seize the reins of power? Where is that coming from, folks? Uh, are we done for? Uh, these reactionary clowns, uh, well, let's switch metaphors. I think we need to find the right people to guide the ship of state into a sea of common sense. Now, uh, <laughs> I, I hold out the silly childish belief that it might help to have women, uh, on the scene. I don't know. It might make a difference anyway. It does seem to me that we need to move into a 21st century that can accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. At least we might try to catch up with the rest of the Western world, you know. Uh, global warming is a fact, that sort of thing. But, uh, as somebody said recently, I'm not optimistic, but I do have hope. This week, I made a list of all the little things, the little media messages and, you know, the TV shows that connect, that I hope reach people who uh, don't don't pay much attention to, um, you know, what's going on in the streets. All they see is what they uh, find on media. The political drama in the streets needs to be interpreted and... and uh, given to them in small doses. There was a, a television show by Edward James Olmos. It's a TV drama called Walk Out. It's about a school protest that happened back in 1968. I thought it might be useful for high school students. It was pretty much a generic show, but uh, it was heartfelt. I remember that protest back in 1968. Uh, Hispanic students staging a walkout. Demanding a better deal in the um, L.A. schools. Anyway, all the arguments were presented, um, dramatized. Uh, uh, Edward almost plays one of the naysayers, you know, a, a proper principal who says, well, what good did those Watts riots do? Always people ask, you know, what good does it do to uh, carry a sign? So many protests, so little results. Even the great Pete Seeger admits to moments of melancholy. There's a piece in the New Yorker on Pete Seeger. It's in the April 17th, 2006 issue. Uh, Bruce Springsteen has just released a new CD of Seeger's folk songs, so he'll be getting a lot of attention. Uh, they're not the really gutsy folk songs, but... It's enough to acquaint a new generation with the history of progressive folk music. Uh, let me give you a glimpse of this. Uh, we need to review our notes on this uh, this great man. 
I think of Pete Seeger as a kind of holy man, you know, kind of a sacred. Some songsters, some poets are uh, part of a sacred tradition. Uh, Bruce Springsteen uh, says that the whole history of the country is there. Talking about his CD, he transformed everything. Now, this is a profile. It's a nice picture by Annie Leibovitz, right? And then there's a terrific picture of Pete Seeger with Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, all the folks back here. 1944, he's an army private singing at the opening of the Washington Labor Canteen. Yep, God bless Eleanor Roosevelt. I brought Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, Declaration of Human Rights from the United Nations today. Maybe next week I'll have time to just read the whole thing. Uh, it's my favorite uh, example of what a woman can do if given a little political power. <laughs> anyway, this piece called The Protest Singer... Pete Seeger in American Folk Music is written by Alec Wilkinson. And he says it was the ambition of the singer and songwriter Pete Seeger as a child in the 1920s to be an Indian, a farmer, a forest ranger, or possibly an artist. He liked to draw. He went to Harvard. He joined the Tenor Banjo Society, studied sociology in the hope of becoming a journalist. My gosh, footnote here sounds just like uh, the great, the late great uh, John Kenneth Galbraith. I'll be talking about John Kenneth Galbraith Thursday morning at 8.20. Uh, uh, one of the great quintessential liberal voices of the 20th century. Anyway, uh Pete Seeger was a dropout. He left uh, at the end of his second year. He lost his scholarship. Anyway, he rode a bicycle north from New York through New England. Seeger was tall and thin and earnest and polite. He would make a watercolor sketch of a farm from the fields and then knock on the farmhouse door and ask if he could trade the drawing for a meal. In the 40s, Seeger was a member of a group called the Almanac Singers, which included Woody Guthrie. The name derived from their belief that many farming homes had two books, a Bible and an almanac. <laughs> they appeared mainly at strikes and rallies held to support the rights of laborers. Seeger says that they were famous to readers of the Daily Worker, the newspaper of the Communist Party. When the Almanac Singers broke up, Seeger played on his own for a while and then became a member of the Weavers, whose version of Goodnight Irene by Leadbelly was for 13 weeks in 1950 the best-selling record in America. <laughs> I love that, yes. Goodnight Irene, we played it for, oh, a decade. The Weavers quit playing in 1952 after an informant told the House Un-American Activities Committee that three of the four weavers, including Seeger, were communists. Seeger knew students at Harvard who were communists, and with the idea in mind of a more equitable world, he eventually became one himself. 
Following the informant's testimony, the weavers found fewer and fewer places to work. Seeger and his wife, Toshi, decided that Seeger should sing for any audience that would have him. They printed a brochure and sent it out to summer camps and colleges and schools and churches. Uh, Seeger began engaging in what he calls guerrilla cultural tactics. Arriving in a town he'd been hired to play in, he'd call the local radio station. The disc jockey, remembering the Weavers, would usually invite him to talk on the air and Seeger would discuss his concert and then play that night and be gone before anybody had time to object. In towns where his appearances were more widely publicized, he grew accustomed to pickets with signs saying things such as Khrushchev's Songbird. <laughs> In How Can I Keep From Singing, a biography of Seeger, David Dunaway writes that a poll conducted during the period uh, at Harvard, yes, said that 52% of the American people thought Communists should be put in jail. Well, I doubt if it would be much different today. What do you think? Uh, obviously, uh, most Americans, well, apparently uh, many Americans think that the press uh, should have to get government permission <laughs> before it publishes stuff anyway. A promoter brought the Weavers back together in 1955 for a concert at Carnegie Hall. Uh, uh, Seeger left the Weavers again in 1957. Uh, one of the songs from their catalog, Pay Me My Money Down, The Lament of an Indignant Sailor, appears on We Shall Overcome the Seeger Sessions, Bruce Springsteen's new record. Okay, that's out now, folks. It was released April 25th. The other songs on the record are versions of folk songs, that Seeger recorded and tended to sing on his own. Uh, now, let's see if I can find you another little bit of Seeger's biography. Once again, I'm reading to you from a profile. There's a profile of Pete Seeger in the April 17th issue of The New Yorker called The Protest Singer. Pete Seeger, an American folk music. This is important to have if you're a school teacher uh, because of course Pete Seeger was very much uh, overlooked for decades because he was on the uh, blacklist more or less uh, Seeger had a real sense of the musician as historical entity of being a link in the thread of people who sing in others voices and carry the tradition forward uh, in any case he typically performed with the simplest instrumentation, with a banjo and guitar, whereas Springsteen on the CD is accompanied by drums, uh, uh, let's see, bass, piano, guitar, accordion, banjo, double fiddles, horns, backup singers, etc., etc., etc. Springsteen's versions include references uh, to... Dixieland, gospel, string band, rhythm and blues, rock and roll. Okay. Uh, the Seeger Sessions does not include the songs that Seeger wrote, such as Turn, Turn, Turn. Uh, let's see. Also, they left out If I Had a Hammer. Okay, well, you just have to go to other recordings for some of the 
gutsier songs. Uh, in any case, this article does mention that Pete Seeger's nature is almost unflaggingly hopeful, but a line of melancholy runs through it. He says, I seem to stagger about this agonized world as a clown dressed in happiness, hoping to reach the hearts and minds of the young. When newspaper reporters ask me what effect my songs have, I try and make a brave reply, but I'm really not so certain. Eighty-six years now. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20 till then go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. general manager of KFCF Radio. In early March, the KFCF transmitter was damaged during a storm. While repairs are taking place, the station has been forced to broadcast at reduced power, making it difficult or impossible for listeners in some areas to receive the signal. The station needs a new transmitter now, and you can help with a contribution to the KFCF transmitter fund. With your help, KFCF can raise the additional money it needs to buy a new transmitter. To contribute, visit our website, kfcf.org, or send it to KFCF, P.O. Box 4364, Fresno, California, 93744. And you're listening to KPFA, KPFC in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. Stay with us.